Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. So again, um, to those of you who have not heard my apologies before, I uh, got up in the darkness this morning and, and stumbled around and uh, I had assembled my talk and, and uh, put my computer and the book that I need to quote from and so on in a bag, which I then drove off without. So I've spent most of the, the last two sitting periods scribbling to try and reconstruct what I wanted to say. Uh, and um, so it will be somewhat even more disjointed than, than my normal talks. I apologize for that. I, I want to talk about uh, the tensions that I feel in a lot of those things I've learned about Buddhism and some of what some of those tensions are and why they are important in my practice. And uh, I want to talk about this wonderful phrase that uh, I was recently introduced to by Flint uh, in his December 8 talk and elsewhere uh, called Endarkenment um, and a, a book that I've been reading about that. And then finally, I want to talk about tears and what keeps our eyes from drying up. So I will start here. Uh, first of all, I'm, I'm grateful to Flint for, for introducing me to this book. It's called uh, Vimala Kirti and the Awakened Heart by Joan Sutherland Roshi. Uh, and uh, I would have known about this before. I know if I had taken Flint's course about Vimala Kirti or, or the course that Lara ta uh, Lari taught several years ago about Vimala Kirti. Uh, but a wonderful book, very poetic and uh, uh, unlocks a lot of stuff that I had resisted uh, before. Uh, and she talks about the concept of endarkenment and and uh, explains uh, how that how that is illustrated by the story of Vimala Kirti, uh, the, the fable about Vimala Kirti and his encounter with Manjushri and the other bodhisattvas um, who who figure in the story. Uh, and hearing the term endarkenment uh, at first, I thought it had something to do with embracing your shadow side uh, and uh, being willing to um, deal with unpleasant parts of one's own personality and so on, uh, that it, which is not excluded from that, but it's certainly, it's much, much more than that. Um, so uh, here's a digression that uh, has that will fold back into it. Uh, I, on December 8th in a talk I gave, I quoted from a book by Barry Manjit called Nothing is Hidden about Koans. And he describes uh, the tension that is found in the stories about Gautama, uh, the child who grew into the, the man who left his home behind to become a teacher. Uh, and he, he says, you know, there, there are stories in which the supernatural aspects of the Buddha's life are strongly emphasized. Uh, and and um, how uncomfortable it makes him that there, you know, one of the stories in, in the Zen tradition is has the has the Buddha be the sort of child who 
the moment he has fallen to the earth from his mother's body, uh, jumps up and says, in the heavens above and the four quarters of the earth, there is none holier than I. So Majid says, was, was the Buddha that kind of creature, you know, this kind of otherworldly creature? Or was he a regular human being who was able to find new insights into the human mind, a kind of practical psychological healer? Uh, Majid makes a point that in the stories, the Buddha leaves his father's palace after having encounters with the conditions that we are all heir to as human beings, as animals, as inhabitants of this planet. Uh, uh, those conditions being old age, sickness, and death. And that he left the palace and is quoted as saying, these factors must ultimately be rejected. And that he then adap uh, adopted a series of, of practices, privations, which almost killed him, uh, trying to wipe out all traces of the attachments, which would keep him uh, vulnerable to old age, sickness, and death. Uh, but those, those privations, they, they did not solve the problem for him. And um, he's, Magic writes finally, yet after all those years of struggle, the essence of the Buddha's realization was that precisely old age, sickness, and death are inescapable that impermanence is the most fundamental thing, not only about our human lives, but about all of existence. And this, I think, has something to do with the concept of endarkament that, that uh, Roshi Sutherland writes about. Um, she writes it with evident pleasure about all the supernatural stuff at the beginning, all the, all the, the gods and, and bodhisattvas and, and arhats crowded together uh, who hear from the Buddha that the um, uh, Vermalakirti, this householder who uh, goes to brothels and, and does other things that, that enlightened beings are not supposed to do, um, that he's sick and that someone should go visit him and check up on him. And nobody wants to go because they have, uh, he has a reputation of being like Socrates uh, for having a skill in asking confounding questions, which makes people back up and, and reevaluate their own stances on things. Uh, and finally, Manjushri, the Bodhisattva Prajna, uh, usually translated as wisdom, uh, volunteers, and then the rest decide that they will go along. And then there's this funny business about, you know, here's Rimalakirti in a 10 by 10 room, and he has to get 10,000 gigantic lion thrones for all of these beings to sit on and they all fit in the room and so on. She has a lot of fun with that. More seriously, she says, Prajna should probably be uh, translated not as wisdom, but as bright insight. And she says bright insight is good, but incomplete. Uh, it, uh, and, and that this bright insight that Manjushri has He's, he's the guy with the sword that cuts through delusion, um, that it operates pretty much instantaneously. She says that that is not wisdom. 
because wisdom is more than insight. It needs compassion to be actually whole. And that awakening is not the same as insight. And it's not the same uh, even as wisdom. It is a lifelong process of becoming wiser and becoming, uh, combining insight with compassion. And, and that it is a lifelong process. It's not an instantaneous quick reading into things. And she says that to get to that, enlightenment needs enlightenment. She And she points out, and this is a part that I really respond to, that enlightenment by itself is kind of precarious and brittle. And, and this is shown by the, by the um, drama of these bodhisattvas being unwilling to visit Mantri, uh, to visit Pimalakirti. Uh, that they, that they, uh, these bodhisattvas need a lot of special circumstances to protect their purity. And they are anxious about being defiled, she writes. And now I have to find a quote on my phone. It'll take a minute. She says, uh, in modern terms, we might think of the dialogue between Manjushri and Vimalakirti as a crucial meeting between consciousness and un uh, between conscious and unconscious of waking and dreaming life. Perhaps we could say that Manjushri is the flash of insight that moves at lightning speed of synaptic firings in the brain. He has a swift sword that cuts through complications and confusion. Vimalakirti, on the other hand, represents the slower movements of the heart, the idiosyncratic inhale and exhale beat of a bloody muscle. He has a remarkable sickbed upon which he lies down to rest upon the vastness. That's great. We know what it's like when mind and heart are laboring separately from each other. The heaviness of a human heart unenlightened by insight is often what brings people to, to meditation. Then when we begin to have certain kinds of meditation experiences, insight will do what it does, which is to run out ahead. That's painful in its own way because you can see everything so clearly, but you can't for the time being feel warmth or tenderness. You have to suffer the discomfort while your heart catches up. If you don't, you become one of those companions of the way who make people wonder how someone who's done so much meditating can be such a jerk. So, what a great book. Um, so, she goes on to describe the process of opening to the world in compassion and embracing all those parts of our lives that usually get glossed over or sometimes very violently pushed aside in the effort to be enlightened. And that, that, that enlightenment cannot be whole and awakening cannot occur by pushing those things aside. 
Does that remind you of anything? Uh, does, it, does that remind you in any way of all the thousands of talks and lessons offered by Pat and Flint? It sure does me. So uh, I want to talk about tears. And if you would put that picture up on the screen, Rosemary, if you can do that. So this is an, uh, an illustration from an anatomy online lesson about tears. And I don't know if you can see everything, but it, just reading down from the top, there's a, there's a picture of an eye, uh, and uh, above the eyebrow, and actually anatomically behind the eyebrow, I guess it's on the right side in this view, there are some glands, the lacrimal gland there. They are, um, labeled and then below that there's uh, an air, uh, a, a pointer going down to the white part of the eye the conjunctiva and then over to the right there's a, a series of, of uh, other things called out one is pointing to the cornea the, the colored part of the eye that has the iris in it uh, and then it, although it's hard to see probably there but there's a, a layer of tears that's sitting on top of the cornea and on top of the conjunctiva. And there are, there's the mucus layer, the watery layer, and the oil layer. And then finally, at the bottom of the illustration, there's this, um, there's two little arrows pointing up and they're pointing at kind of rod-shaped structures in the lower eyelid that are called the Maybomian glands, M-E-I, B-O-M-I-A. And the reason that I want to talk about this is because it's a kind of, to me, it's a kind of second order endarkenment or embrace of endarkenment to realize that we have a word for these, for this substance that is, um, that's within our eyes. We call them, we call them tears and we say tears are things that we cry when we're sad or, or have other strong emotions. Uh, and, they, and we know that they have the function of keeping our eyes lubricated. I will say also that I, uh, my sister, Trudy Barnum-Lloyd, who died about 14 months ago, had uh, a number of um, autoimmune diseases, and one of them was called Sjogren's syndrome, Sjogren's disease, which is um, a condition in which the tear glands don't produce enough tears, and the uh, salivary glands uh, don't produce, produce enough saliva. And these can be, uh, you know, in, in certain circumstances, these can be not only very troublesome, but can lead to blindness, can uh, encourage bacterial infections and so on. So I, uh, there's a genetic component to Sjogren's disease and I've been tested and I do not have a genetic marker for it, but, I, but having, learned about this from my sister, I, I, I learned more about tears. But the main thing is, uh, another quote that I want to read, and this is from a, a piece by the, uh, the health writer in the New York Times, Jean Brody. She says, think of the tear film that coats and lubricates the eye as a three-layer sandwich. The Maybomian glands in the upper and lower eyelids create an oily, 
outer layer that stabilizes the film. If the film breaks up too quickly, blurry vision is likely to result. Next are two sets of lacrimal glands that supply the watery tears. And innermost is the mucin layer, that is a kind of mucus that is found all over the body, that attracts water and helps to spread the tear film over the surface of the cornea. Even if the tear supply is adequate, the mucin deficiency can impede wetting of the cornea and damage its surface. So we have a single word for tears. And it turns out that they are produced by an ongoing, oh, I'm sorry, there's something I left out off. So. Both the meibomian and lacrimal glands have receptors for the sex hormones, androgen and estrogen. And a decrease in hormone levels likely explains why dry eye problems increase in women at menopause and in men and in men who are treated with anti-androgen therapy for prostate cancer. So again, I keep coming back to this phrase and I'm breaking off, but the um, the mysterious quality that the, that this thing that we normally pay zero attention to unless there's some problem. Uh, these tears that lubricate our eyes and they get expressed in particular ways under emotional circumstances. They are the product of millions of years of evolution. They are um, factors in our lives that we ignore, but that connect us with every other kind of mammal, not just primates, but all mammals. And, and many other types of, of uh, living beings as well. Uh, and that they, they play this role in our, our, be, in our being able to apprehend the world and, the, and for, what, for humans, the, the most important of the senses uh, for, for most sighted humans. And, um, and, and we literally look through them and pay no attention to them. And we accept that they've been studied by doctors and written about in textbooks and so on. We have no way of knowing about them. So we are, this is, this is to me is just another example of the vast gulf of darkness that we exist in. That, the, that all these factors in our lives that it takes work to come to appreciate. And, and that appreciation leads, I think, to gratitude and to compassion. That it's worth studying what goes on in our bodies. Because the, the physical world, the world we live in, the bodies we have, the incredible journey of each of our cells and each of the molecules that make up the proteins and the fats and the liquids and so on within our bodies. Each of them is an incredible story. And we need to be paying attention to that, I think. Or at least uh, this is what I say to myself over and over again. I need to be paying attention to these things. I need to dig in a little more and find out what underlies these brief kind of um, averaging out sort of activities that I do and realizing what a mystery is 
is unfolding in every single second. So to me, that is a kind of second order in darkened a something to embrace about this world right here, right now, that we can do, that can, that can point us in the same direction as this wonderful story about Ramana Kirti and his encounter with Manjushri. So, yes, thank you, Rosemary. I would be happy to answer any questions I can. I appreciate your patience with this talk. And it's so great to be able to look into the screen and see how people are reacting at the same time. So um, if you have a question, would you raise your hand and Rosemary can call on people uh, and let me know who's going to speak. Uh, yeah, if you could um, use that, um, the uh, reaction raise hand button so I could see everybody. I can't see everybody right now. Thank you. Okay. I'm going to, I'm guessing that there's no questions for me at this time. I'm not seeing any hands go up. Well, so, I, I was, I was going to say something as, as long yeah. as I'm unmuted. Um, so, um, I when I was sitting today, I was um, doing body scan, the Analeo body scan. And when I came to water um, and the eyes, um, you know, I was um, contemplating what we're talking about now and tears. And, um, and I was also in all of the body scan I was doing, I was expanding it to all, all beings. So I was thinking about animals and so that, that was my question, you know, do animals cry? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't if know if you know that, if you're not an expert, but. There are, there are examples of animals expressing emotion and tears being involved. I can't give any exact references right now, but I think orangutans have been known to cry uh, in the same way that humans do. And there are probably others. But even if they don't cry to express emotion, they have the same structure of tears that we do, which again, is not just like one thing that pops up. It's, it's, it's incredibly complex uh, relationship among many body parts. Um, and I, I think there's a, you know, a beauty, a grandeur. It's like, I love that phrase that, that Sutherland writes about, Umala Kirti making his bed on the vastness. Kim? Oh, you want me to spotlight you? Oh, okay, let's. Uh, okay. No, I need some muting. Oh, okay. Thank so, you. See, John, John and Bill, it looks like Bill was raising his hand. So what I really enjoyed about your talk was the description of this miracle, the miracle of the eye. And uh, when I was uh, in high school, I would go to the library to study, and there was a book. This was the University of Chicago Library, and there was an old, old book of miracles. And I, my, my like goal in life was to experience miracles. And I thought that I probably never would, 
and then I realized, of course, that this life we lead is, you know, and the fact that we're here and it keeps becoming more and more apparent how how the miracles that the saints experienced was nothing like the miracles we get, you know, with our body, with our eye, the fact that we can cry. Those are real miracles. So thank you for that. I agree. Thank you. Joan, Joan and Bill. Thank you. Okay. See, called the okay. Weeping Camel. There you go. Tell her again. And there's a good movie called The Weeping Camel. It's, it's made in Mongolia, made in Mongolia. And it, it talks about a camel that refuses to deal with its, its newborn calf. And and all things that they go through to find somebody who could help the camel. And finally, at the end, you see the camel weeping. Oh, thank you, Bill. I also wanted to say something. Can you hear John, me? Yeah, yes, John. Bill and I used to go see a counselor together, a really lovely man, and he had a dog. And when we'd get settled on the couch, the dog would always be there. And if either, either of us was emotional, not even crying, but he could sense it, he would come over and lick our hands. You could tell he was responding to this. Hmm. Yeah. So, do dogs have Buddha nature? Do dogs express compassion? <laughs> Pretty clear. I'd forgotten the Weeping Camel movie. I've seen that. It's been a long time. So I need to check that out again. It's great. Um, it looks like Nelda is the next person. Okay. Nelda? Dan Weaver? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I forgot to uh, let everybody unmute. Sorry about that. Um, now I think everybody, yeah, everybody can unmute themselves now. Sorry about that. Good morning. Thank you. Joel, I, I loved your talk and I want to follow up on something that Kitten said, but in slightly different words. Um, I had the good fortune recently in the past few weeks to come across a particular meditation. It's a night meditation um, that is entitled something like living in grace. And I define, I, actually, I don't. This, um, this uh, moderator of the meditation, no, I define it, defines grace as unmerited favor. And um, really brought home the point as you did this moment, as you did through your talk, that we are surrounded by grace, unmerited favor in the fact that our eyes water, the fact that the breeze blows. And even um, in those moments of endarkenment, because each of those is a um, moment to open up to the grace of which we are, this body aside, made. And so um, she defines grace as the present moment. And so that if we're not living in grace and awareness of our 
the unmerited favor that we are and that we receive, um, then we're not in the present moment. And so thank you because I tied your talk to that particular meditation and it just expanded my gratitude for grace. Thank you. Um, Maria? Hi, um, as you were talking, Joel, about um, the eye and all the different parts and how one part works and if another part doesn't and how it affects our vision. And it was kind of making me think of, of all our parts, you know, and, and how we, we sit in meditation. And, and as we do, we kind of notice all the different parts of ourselves and, and some we're not aware of. And, and, and if we don't sit and watch those parts, then they start doing things without our awareness and, and start causing problems. And, and then we start to get blurred vision, if you like, we start to see things in an obscured way in a in a way that isn't, you know, like we, we talk about delusions in Buddhism, you know, we kind of start seeing everything from a from a different angle. And, and what I love about sitting and about this practice is that um, it teaches me a lot about wise and unwise attention to those parts, how we can, we can sit and have unwise attention and be critical and self-blaming and, or we can sit in compassion and like we do for others, you know, how we, it's so easy to give that compassion to somebody else that we see struggling in the very same way, but it takes it takes a lot more for us to really sit and get settled and to offer that compassion to ourselves, and we can only do that through through sitting. And I often think about my foot. You know, I, I'll go to my foot, and I wasn't aware of it until like this second that I've just said that, and how it's doing something I'm not aware of, and how many parts we have that are doing things we're not aware of, and how how important this practice and sitting is just like going to the opticians and looking at the different parts of the eye and seeing what needs help and what needs support and, and how we might not be seeing clearly, how this practice is like a mirror of that. You know, we, we, we see clearly, we don't see clearly and how we need each other to really kind of be able to, to watch and keep an eye on those parts in a compassionate way and to let them kind of breathe and come forward so that we can sit with them in a way that's in company rather than in the way that we can get into habits of doing which is getting in knots and self-blame and oh my goodness i'm there again you know it's kind of giving oxygen to to all all our parts i really enjoyed you going through that about the eye because it really brought all that up for me so thank you for that joe thank you maria and of course you're a professional you have very wonderful insight into this, into the, into the possibilities for working with these parts, and, and, and you are a dedicated practitioner, so that, that plays into it. So I, I'm, I'm grateful for what you are adding to, to this. It's, uh, it's, it's really wonderful. Um, we have, we have Jess. Okay, I'm sorry. I, I, let me just finish one other thing. Sorry which is that I, I think that this is exactly what you just described is uh, not everything, but a great deal of what uh, Joan Sutherland is talking about as, as endarkenment. Those, though, that being willingness to turn to everything that is, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's painful, uh, even if we don't want it, and and, and include and to include those parts of us that make us turn away that make us 
not embrace what's in front of us in the same embrace but that's all of the dark so i think i'm going to be spending many years discovering what she's talking about here <laughs> i feel like this is a great gift thank you maria jess <clears throat> thank you um yeah, I ordered the book. I mean, uh, I think it's uh, it was inspiring to hear the talk, and uh, I think the parts that resonated for me was um, uh, when you mentioned that there was these um, forget the term, but like kind of bodhisattvas that um, were afraid <laughs> to to see the sick person, um, and because they're so uh, they're peace or enlightenment is um, is frail in some way and it's like it's just it can be it can be a lot to kind of see some suffering and uh, I feel like that that could describe me in some ways you know for sure uh, so that part yeah I um, I'm letting it move and um, yeah, I think uh, it's funny whenever Maria talks, like uh, when we do our daily sitting and stuff, whenever she talks, often when she talks, I um, she always stirs something up in me. <laughs> so uh, uh, so kind of uh, what landed there was, um, you know, I've been uh, like today said I was, I'm doing this uh, Anapana Suti Suda, the 16 steps. And, uh, you know, I think lately uh, there's been a lot of, lot of activity in my life and, you know, my thoughts are just going everywhere, all over. And, you know, one of, one of the steps is, uh, you know, we, uh, you know, these vain attempts are kind of try to control where these thoughts are going, you know, it's like, you know, letting that go and just having the awareness of the thoughts and having an awareness of our whole body within, you know, our body and mind, actually the awareness brings a calming often, you know, just that in itself. And um, kind of what you described about just the awareness of the eyes and how much they do. And uh, what Maria was saying about our parts and when we bring awareness to them, because like, I definitely have a strong critical part of me and that critic, I can totally blend with, you know, where I'm not even aware that that is some anyway. So this awareness, um, but when I'm, when I'm just noticing all that's happening, that kind of, uh, I think that term living in grace, that just sort of awareness of all this unmerited things that are happening. There is this sort of, it's a strange um, sense of calm that comes over me. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I guess it's it's terrifying the, the sea of suffering, you know, it's, it's is terrifying in one sense, but then also to, to rest in it is, um, I could see that as, as something that's very common. So um, anyways, there's stuff stirring in there and uh, thank you all.
see Jean's hand up. Sorry, I asked Rosemary how to raise my hand uh, officially. <laughs> That's why I put my hand up because I had no idea how to use the yellow hand. <laughs> so uh, thank you, Joel, for your talk. And I struggled today for something a friend from childhood said before I started the meditation, some text that triggered me fully into fight and flight. And I was there. And Maria, I tried very hard to do let go or you'll be dragged. Uh, it didn't work for me, of course. It wasn't my thing at that time. So I brought my ventral energy into fight and flight. And I just held. I'm not asking you to go away. I'm not asking. It, it evokes so much stuff because old friends can do that. They know you for so long. But I held that and like just was saying, you know, it was a struggle and it didn't go away. It didn't get better. Instead, it accelerated more. But the holding of it with compassion gave it ground to say, it's okay. You're here, I see you. You don't have to resolve this. You don't have to answer this. I just see you. I just hear you. I'm here. I care. I care deeply for this pain. And for some reason, I don't know, maybe just I was misconstruing your words, but it held it. You know, it didn't release the, the suffering. It didn't go away, but it held it. It didn't trigger more narratives and stories about how bad I am or how bad you are or how bad everyone is that comes into that same periphery. It just held it. And I don't know, for some reason, Joel, I don't know what part, but your talk kind of crystallized that holding that just, it's okay just to hold it wherever it is, whatever's coming up. Doesn't have to resolve. How, how long would you say that you have been on the path? How long have you been meditating? Maybe three years, uh, regular meditation, like everyday practice, maybe. And during that time, how, or how long has it been since you've been able to do what you just described to meet a really difficult emotion with compassion and let it be what it has to be uh, without trying to change it? Have you? I don't know. It's like Nelda's grace. It's like Nelda's grace, Joel. It comes in waves. Sometimes I can be completely held in either shutdown or fight flight. And then it feels like grace will come unexpectedly and hold me up. But I don't know whether it's directly related to being in breath or, you know, body or like I could have the candle in the middle of the night and wake up and be completely triggered. And it feels like just I'm held. So I don't know. I haven't been able to put it to one thing, but I know that there are moments I'm not held and there are moments I'm held and there are moments I'll spin. 
I don't know uh, if anything I said makes sense, but. Certainly, certainly. I, and, and the reason I'm asking that is because I think that, you know, the Buddha talked about skillful means. And there, I, I don't think there's anything in the, the Buddha's original teachings about that particular process that you just described, meeting a fear, meeting a, a, a you know, a, a very strong emotion and being cast into the physical reaction that is this fight and flight thing that, that, that comes from a part of our brain that operates much faster and much stronger than our, than, than, you know, our discursive mind and the mind in which we can hold a broader view and so on. And yet you have developed a skill out of, out of your practice. And I, I just want to say that is skillful means. And that, that's something that I've heard about from uh, Peg and Flint and other teachers and learned so much about from Laurie and Todd and, and uh, others with Apamata, uh, Maria, Rosemary, Jess, Claudine, Nancy. And I'm going to pardon me for leaving other people out. Nelda, Kim. Just people that I get to talk to recently, or, uh, fairly regularly, and I learned so much about that. And I, I just, I'm so grateful that you shared that. And, and I just want to say, you. you are, you have pointed to some skillful means that um, can benefit everybody. scanning to see if anybody else has a hand up. Dan, I saw that you had your virtual hand up before. I just want to say I haven't had a chance to talk to you before, and I want to say thank you for joining today. I hope it was something you enjoyed and got something from. Um, thank you. This was uh, unexpected for me to be here, and the talk is so appropriate that I'm kind of in shock slightly because it's, um, <clears throat> I've been spending a lot of time on a kind of path where the attention was redirected away from these things. And um, I started to become aware of the impact of that, especially with recently um, being in more social situations and at first, my, I had a question about if you're looking at what's coming up, how to not go into it too much and create more, but the sharing that just took place was very clear. And <clears throat> In, in our daily uh, chants that we say on weekdays, we take three refuges, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And the last one's really important. So uh, I hope that you can connect more with Apamata and to, and to know the incredible resource 
but the people that you can see on the screen here are for support. Uh, I know it so intimately, and uh, you're not alone. I, I can feel it. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, thank you, everybody, for being here. Thank you, Dan. <laughs> so I, I want to say one more thank you, and that is to Laura Furman. I don't know if you can see her name on your screen. That's my wife. Uh, we celebrated our 41st wedding anniversary last week. And she saved my bacon this morning. She took pictures of the of the pages in the book that I wanted to quote from and, and got them to me. So I woke her up to do that. So thank you, Laura. <laughs> thank you. And so far as I know, this is the first time Laura has ever listened to one of my talks in real time. It's a thrill for me. 